Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Thank you, Jay. Man, I'm so glad you made it here today. Can, uh, are you excited that you're here? Yeah. All right. Turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm so glad you made it. Go and smile at them. All right, turn to your other neighbor. And you guys know the drill. Say, go Cowboys. Yes. Amen to that. There's a revival in the house today. I had to rebuke first service. I had to rebuke them. Man, to, to be honest, we should have had whatever that was that was heavenly at the end of the service. As a preacher, that's the last thing you want to follow. How many, I mean, Koki has that malevolous voice. My God, Koki. Lord have mercy. And then Josh on the, sa- we're having saxophone in, in church. Love that. And then Kanan. Kanan on the piano. My, he was doing something with his hand. I'm like, these guys are so talented. I mean, it is amazing. Uh, how many of you, before I get into the message here today, how many of you want to see a video of, of my kids? Right? And there's is no relevancy to anything, but I just want to show you my life, right? So this is uh, Presley, uh, and I think it's Waverly, and I think it's Riley. Having church. having church. They're having church at our house. So Presley's our little preacher, man. So if we could put that up, and then you can enjoy it, or not. Whatever. I don't care. He was preaching fire and brimstone to his four unregenerate um, brothers and sisters, right? So we didn't get that part. That would have scared a lot of you, right? But uh, yeah, he welcomed, or he thanked everybody for coming to Capital Church. That was, I love that. All right, well, I'm glad you made it here today. Uh, If you don't know anything about um, the season that we're in, we call it Advent. As a church, we're kind of new to this. Or non-denominational charismatic church. So when we were younger, we didn't we didn't observe Advent. But Advent, if if you're not familiar with it, it's just simply we're looking back at the first Advent, which is this cosmically singular event that the Bible calls incarnation. And what we want to do is we want to contemplate, we want to plunge the depths of what the incarnation is. It's absolutely breathtaking. Can I get an amen? That Jesus came into the flesh, or we'll say it this way, the eternal son of God became human. We call his name Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. Put that in your theological pipe and do not smoke it, okay? And as you wrestle with that, we realize that God is with us. God, Emmanuel. He's not just above us in some space-time location, way out in deep space. But and he's not just around us, behind us. He is with us. And he took on the complicated mess, disorganized mess of humanity for our sake. And then he died in our place. Come on, somebody. That's pretty amazing. So we celebrate that, we observe it, we look back, but we also look forward to the time when Jesus will return. 
Let me just say this, and I've said this a, a, a lot at church, but the large-scale Christian hope is not that we one day will fly off into the sky, sing kumbaya, and uh, go to heaven, right? And heaven is like, you know, some distant location in deep space, some far, far, far away galaxy. No, our ultimate hope is that God will return, the new Jerusalem will come down, and God will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear. He will remove all the pain, all the suffering. He will remove the sea, which is a symbol of chaotic evil, and there will be no evil in this world, and God's word will be the last word, not sickness, not death, not Hades, not Satan, not anything, trauma. It is God's word that is the last word. So, what we do at Advent is we look back to the incarnation and we look forward to uh, the return of Jesus. And next week, I'm going to talk about um, hope and what that means for us. But also at Advent, we understand that we're living in between those two things, those two great events. And what we need to do, in the, in the words of, of one scholar, author, writer, is that any religious system during Advent who ignores the dark side of life are fundamentally dishonest. So when we live in, in between the two times of the incarnation and the return of Jesus, it is so important, it's decisive if we want to experience the life and the joy that Mark was talking about. We have to be honest about ourselves. We can't pretend that we don't have any problems. We all know that we've got 99 problems. Some of you did not catch that, Okay. We do not pretend that we do not have problems. We have trauma and we have drama that we carry in our bodies. We have sin patterns that we engage in. We have um, seething resentments and sin addictions and bitterness and obsessive things that consume our heart and our mind as we go into the Advent season. And it is absolutely decisive as followers of Jesus if we want to enter into the joy and the peace that we're talking about. If we want to get on the inside of Christmas, not just go through Christmas and then look back and like, okay, I, I missed it all, right? Have you ever been there before? You just went through Christmas and you just felt like, okay, where did it go? I wish I could have some joy and peace in my life. But if you want to get inside of the realities that we're talking about for Christmas, we have to acknowledge the darkness that is out there. And we all know it. We all know that there is something wrong out there in the world. The world. Please help me out here. Give me an amen. It's not as it should be. Case of point, we have vegans out there. I'm kidding. My wife and I were vegans. I was a forced vegan, okay? I, but I, to be honest, I just felt like eating like a bird wasn't my thing, right? Eating seeds and whatever. Anyways, let's move on. Philadelphia Eagle fans, right? You're out there. Some of you are here today. There is something wrong with this world. Now, let me say something really quick. I am not saying that you'll lose your salvation if you're a Philadelphia Eagle fan, but why take the chance? That was a bad joke. But we know there's darkness out there in the world. So I'm going to read our passage here today out of John chapter 3, 19 through 20. And this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. At night, and he says in verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
So Advent is not just plunging into the darkness because we're masochistic people and we just want to, whatever, nerd out on dark things. No. Advent is all about understanding that we love the darkness, but the good news to that is that Jesus is the one who shines into the darkness of our lives. Can I get an amen to that? So the first step, and this is my thesis of my message I'm going to flesh out over the next probably three hours, if, if you can hang with me. The first, some of you are new here, you're like, is he for real? No, I'm not. The first step on the pathway of becoming a spiritually and emotionally mature follower of Jesus, how many of you want that? About 80 of you? Okay, awesome. The first step of becoming a spiritually, emotionally follower of Jesus is starting with being honest about the darkness in your own life. It's plunging into the dark recesses of your own life, your habits, the way you think, your practices, your rhythms, whatever you want to call it, liturgy or whatever, and bringing that to God. And as you learn to acknowledge that and bring that to God, this is my whole message. It's a really simple message. That is when you will experience wholeness. But here's the thing. Solzhenitsyn said this, the line of good and evil runs through every human heart, right? So we have at, at, at one time we have this amazing capacity or this incredible capacity for goodness. We do really good things. But we also have this incredible capacity for self-deception, which is astonishing. I know because I have seven children. And what I tell them and what my wife and I, what we do every single, well, pretty much every single day, we've been doing this with our big three for the last five, six years, is we've told them this thing, the most, guys, guys, the most important thing that you can learn in life And there are a lot of important things, but I think this is the most important thing for our children. And I also think this is the most important thing if you're an adult, is you have to learn how to deal with your sin. I I just don't think we really know how to do that well. It's funny, I, and, and what I mean by that is spending time with my children, they fight and they, they do wrong things and they disobey and uh, they get that from their mom. Um, kidding they get that from me um is is that what we want to impress with our kids is it's so important that they take responsibility for their sin the most important thing right somebody like oh my god this is like so 1976 that's cute this is jesus stuff Taking responsibility for your sin and not engaging in magical thinking, not blame shifting, not rationalizing your behavior is the first step to becoming a spiritually formed, mature follower of Jesus. It's funny, it's, it's when I, when it, sometimes when I sit my big three who are absolutely amazing and they're, they're, they're the best kids in the world. Whitney, I love you so much. She's up in the front. She never does this. Her, her twin brothers do this all the time is that sometimes they engage in magical thinking, right? They make up stuff to try to explain away their behavior. If you're a parent, can I get an amen? If you're a parent, you probably understand this. Or, or sometimes they just blame the other person. Well, she did this or he did this. And so I just felt like for my own safety, I had to kick this person in the clavicle, right? He's like, <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense, right? And so the first step of really, as we move into Advent, as we then 
head towards the Christmas season, if we really want to enter into the joy and the peace and the wholeness that Jesus has for us as followers of, of, of him, is we have to take responsibility for our sin. Have you ever had one of those days where you just feel good? Like your outfit is right, your hair is perfect, like you feel like you're killing it with your outfit, your shoes, everything just lined up, right? And the, it, the sun's out, gun's out, I don't even know what I'm saying, right? I'm trying to connect with you guys. Um, having a great day, and then someone takes a picture, and they're like, oh, this is gonna be amazing, right? And then when you look at the picture, you're like, oh, oh, wow. I will never be wearing that outfit again. It, to, 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 hear me. To me, this is, this is microcosmic of our self-evaluative talents. Or let me say it this way, or the lack thereof. We do not have the capacity outside of Jesus to evaluate ourselves in a correct way. I don't care how long you've been in church or how little you've been in church or how educated you are or how smart you are. Your IQ is 150. doesn't matter. Our ability and capacity for self-deception is astonishing. Jesus said we love the darkness. So, some of you are really depressed. You're like, well, this is getting chilly in here, right? It's getting heavy, Chris. This is Advent and Christmas. Can you give us some good news? Well, here's some good news. I'm going to give you some good news. Then we're going to get back into the bad news, and then we're going to get back into the good news, okay? There's a little roller coaster ride. We have some aspirin at the end of the service for you. But Colossians chapter 1, 18 through 19 says this. This is the good news. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul writes this. Colossians is, is probably kind of in the middle of the New Testament if you're not familiar with this book. Verse 13 Paul declares he has delivered us, Jesus, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you are in Christ here today, guess what? Your primary essential identity is not that you're a sinner. Your primary identity is not, oh, I got some trauma and, 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 and drama in my life. Your primary identity is not that sin that was done to you. Your primary identity is I'm not, oh, I'm anxious or I'm afraid or I'm addicted to this and this and this. If you are in Christ, guys, please hear me, your primary essential identity is that you are a son and daughter of the king and you are welcomed in the family of Jesus. And guys, that's all based on grace. His grace for you. So we, we have this saying in church sometimes like, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Stop it. The Bible doesn't say that. I know a lot of reformed people say this and I love them, but they're wrong, all right? Because I'm usually right, I'm kidding. But what we should say is that I am a child, a son and daughter of the King of Kings. I'm a, part, I'm a part of a different kingdom. It's the kingdom of light. I'm not a part of the kingdom of darkness. However, as a child or a son and daughter of the King, I also sin. So our starting point, our basis, if we really want to become spiritually and emotionally mature followers of Jesus, who are living and building for the kingdom of God, is that we have to understand that we are children of God if we are in Christ. That is your 
primary identity. That is who you are. But as we begin to understand that, we also have to understand that many of us who are children of God and that we love God and that's the deepest desire of our heart, we also have well or disordered lives. Many of us do not have well-ordered lives. I know I look 22, but I've been in ministry. That was a joke, you can laugh, all right, no? I've been in ministry a long time and I've come to the conclusion that we got a lot of good people, a lot of people that just, their deepest desire is to build for the kingdom of God, but their life is just disordered. Their desires are disordered. In many ways, our lives are, are divided. Our heart, and there are many ways to define heart, I'm just gonna define it as the control panel or control center of your life is divided by competing interests or mutually incompatible desires. Like one day you say, I love you to somebody, and then the next day you whisper under your breath, I hate you. Mutually incompatible desires. On Sunday you come and you say all the things you should say, right? All the nice things, praise be to God, and you sing the Nicene Creed or whatever, and then you go out through the, throughout your week and you just, you say things that Christians should say under their breath, right? Or maybe you Christian cuss, whatever, right? We, we live divided lives, we have alternative desires, alternative uh, things that compete for our, our hearts, co competitive interests that, that try to divide up our lives and our deepest desires to follow Jesus, but our lives are so divided that we're not whole people. And that is why many of us, because we're so fractured, we don't have the joy at Christmas and the peace that we sing about and that we preach about and we talk about. And many of us, we just feel like we're outside in the cold and we just wanna get on the inside. And we, we have Christmas choirs and we have pageants and we have all these homilies and we're just like, I just want that warmth. How do I get inside that warmth? You can only get inside that warmth when you start to acknowledge the darkness in your own life that you're not all right. You are not super, super, super awesome. Man, right? And this is why, man, I'll say it, and I'll say it again. I've said this so many times. This is why we're not called churchians. We're called Christians. Right, we're not here because we all can sing on, on key, because I hear some of you, some of you have good voices, some of you don't, but that's okay. We're not here because we are exemplars of righteousness and goodness and let, let the, man, the world should know that we made it, yeah. right? And we're here today because we have our act together. Right. That is not why we're here today. We are here but for the grace of God. That's why we're called Christians, not churchians. Can I get an amen? It is Jesus who rescues us. So the divided life, as one author says, is a wounded life. And many of you are carrying around wounds because you, your life is so divided up by competing interests. Money, power, sex, go on and on and on. This unchecked consumption of goods, this hurried life, this seething resentment, this bitterness, this anger, this pride, this trauma, the sin that happened to you just defines your life. And yet the Holy Spirit today, please hear me, the Holy Spirit today is calling out to every person in this room because he wants to heal the wounds and forgive the sin and to remove the darkness from your life. 
But again, the problem is we have an incredible, astonishing capacity for self-deception. In a book that was written about how we lie to ourselves, this is, this is kind of humorous. I don't know, you might like it, you might not, whatever. I think it's funny. The author says this, over the course of many years, he's talking about how we lie to ourselves, of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before, and before papers are due. Guess which relative most often dies? Grandma. I am not making this stuff up. Mike Adams, a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University, has done research on this. He has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at even higher risk. Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose their grandma than non-failing students. It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPAs. The moral of all of this is if you are a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to college. It will kill you, especially, especially if he or she is intellectually challenged. We lie to ourselves. We lie. But here's the thing. We have to talk about sin. As one author and scholar, writer, pastor said that the first command in, in Exodus 20 is do not have other gods. The rest of the commandments is a commentary on the failure to love God. So what is at the heart of a divided life? What is at the heart of having all these different priorities and having all these different, different interests that swallow up or suffocate the life that you have before God and the peace that God has for you? Well, it's a failure ultimately to love God. Now, here's the thing. Sin is not just doing something wrong, not just wrongdoing. Sin is not just, oh, that guy's a kleptomaniac, right? It's, it's funny. Uh, I haven't even told my wife this, but a couple, uh, it was this last week, uh, I took Presley, my son, to Albertson's, and he's our preacher man, and he's such a good kid. On our way out, he sees a little toy. He grabs it and comes out, right? So I, I stop him. I explain to him that's stealing, right? I got it before he came out or he would have to go and, and apologize, all that kind of stuff. My wife did that a lot when she was younger. So anyways, I'll move on. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, my wife is so much better than I am, right? Um, and so I sat down and talked to him. And you know, it, when looking at that, we're like, oh, okay, that's sin. And well, of course, um, that's wrongdoing. And of course, we don't support that. And that, that's part of the definition of sin, but sin is so much larger. Sin is so much bigger than just simply being a kleptomaniac or saying something under your breath about your coworker that that's probably shouldn't be said in public. Uh, and it's funny as Christians or just in general, people, they love low hanging fruit. And I've said this before a couple of weeks ago, but many people, their standard is this when it comes to righteousness. At least I didn't kill somebody today. Right? And then we, 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 try, we, we create these standards that are just low-hanging fruit to make us feel better about ourselves because we're unwilling to acknowledge the darkness in the recesses of our heart, our mind, our soul. So what is sin? Sin is just really simple. In the words of one author, pastor, scholar, it's living without reference to God. It's fundamentally ignoring him. We've talked about the definition of sin as defining the good, the beautiful, wrong, the right on your own terms over against God's terms. So we do sin. We do engage in dark things. We do have seething resentments. We do carry trauma and drama and sin patterns in our life. There's no one in here 
that has made it. Can I get an amen? This is good news, and I'll explain why this is good news pretty soon. But we also, we also have a hunger for goodness, right? We have a hunger for beauty, for love, for justice and righteousness. I've said this so many times before, but justice and righteousness in their noun form are virtually synonymous. Righteousness essentially is well-ordered relationships, well-ordered relationship with God, well-ordered relationship with yourself, well-ordered relationship with other people, and well-ordered relationship with creation. That is the basic definition of shalom. That's what God intends to create in the new heavens and the new earth. Well-ordered relationship, nothing fractured. We're all whole people. How many of you want that? That is, that is something that we hunger for, right? That is the hunger in our hearts. We hunger for shalom. We hunger for righteousness. We hunger for justice. Ultimately, guys, we hunger for God. However, many times our strongest desires, everyone say strongest desires. Our strongest desires overwhelm our deepest desires, What does that mean, Chris? Well, I think it's important that we make the distinction between strong desires and deepest desires. When you make a decision to follow Jesus in faith and repentance and in baptism, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes to indwell your body. The Bible makes it very clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Your body is a what? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. So whether you feel like it or not, the Holy Spirit comes and imparts or plants his desires, the desires of heaven itself into your heart. They become, whether you feel like it or not, they become the deepest desires and longings of your heart and your mind and your soul. Are you following me? Well, Chris, I didn't feel that when I, you know, I had a conversion experience. It doesn't matter, right? God imparts that, implants heaven into your heart when you make a decision to follow Jesus. However, we also have strong desires. Those desires will be habits and rhythms that go against the good purposes of God. They're habits that are organized or structured around darkness. What is darkness? Darkness is anything that opposes the good purposes of God for your life. And many times those strong desires overwhelm the deepest desires of our heart. So what's the answer? Well, um, I think the answer is really simple, and I'll explain it this way. It was uh, early 2000s, and uh, I, I was a bachelor, didn't have any children. There was just so much joy back then. I, mean, <laughs> I have so much joy now, guys. I do. I don't have to convince myself. I have so much joy. Um, but I remember I went over to my best friend's house, Shane, Shane and Kirsten, And uh, we had a great time. It was like in the fall, we were playing board games and I remember Kirsten made a batch of popcorn and so we were eating the popcorn, having a great time. Uh, Just talking about life and just chilling. How many like just to chill, right? It's just, you know, we're having a great time. And then at the end, um, it was probably about 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, I turned to Shannon and go, I just don't feel that well. And he looked, looked at me and he's like, uh, yeah, I can't remember what he said. And then it just, something just accelerated in my body, pain that I've never experienced before in my life or since then. And so I had to go into the bathroom and I was just violently sick for, I don't know, about an hour. And just, I was in his bathroom just experiencing the worst kind of pain in my stomach. And so Shane, he, he came to me and said, Chris, you need to go to the ER. So go to the ER. They lived in Nampa back then. 
Going to the ER, they gave me some medicine. How many of you love good medicine? I don't know what it was, probably morphine, but it was amazing, okay? I don't remember half the night after that. But I remember the doctor came and said, hey, Chris, we're going to do some tests, and we're going to try to figure out what's going on with the pain uh, in your stomach. So we did a ton of tests. Again, everything was really blurry. And then the doctor came back after a couple hours and said, hey, Chris, your appendix is inflamed, and we need to do surgery. Um, and if we don't do surgery, your appendix can potentially burst, and it's not good from there. This was my response. I think I'm okay. I just want to go home. <laughs> I don't even know if that was the drugs I, I, I don't even know why I said that, but I'm like, I just want to go home. I felt kind of good. I had some drugs in my system, and I'm like, hey, I, I think I can handle this, right? If I need to do surgery on myself, hey, I, maybe, right? And, and the doctor said, no, Chris, you don't understand. We, we have to do surgery in the next hour, right? And so after just arguing with the doctor, I'm like, I just want to go home. I just want to sleep. I, I, I hate hospitals, right? Finally convinced me to get the surgery. I get the surgery. It's, took about four weeks to, to recover. The point that I'm trying to make is I, I think in miniature, that's how many of us are with our own sin and the, own, the darkness in our own lives. Like Jesus comes and points something out or a trusted mentor or coach comes and says something or a pastor says, hey, I just kind of see this, not in a judgment, in a place of judgment or in a judgmental way, but they just say it out of their love for you and your response is, I just want to go home. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to deal with it, Right. The problem with sin, guys, the problem with darkness that are ensconced in our embodied lives is that it always grows. Right. If left unchecked, it will eventually destroy your life. Right. And thankfully, it was painful, but I had surgery and I had a good doctor, right? And so this kind of gives us the idea of as we acknowledge the dark things in our lives, it can be painful, but that pain is necessary if we want to move into the wholeness that Jesus has for our life. How do we move into that wholeness? Well, First Timothy, Paul writes, he says this, here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And this is what he said at the end, of whom I am chief. I am the worst. Paul is is historically singular, right? He's the one, if you took the aggregate of philosophers that have shaped Western civilization, I would take Paul, and I think Paul beats them every single day. Paul's the one who was influenced more than any other philosopher in shaping Western civilization and how we think. You don't even have to be a Christian, but you're still Pauline, because you grew up in Western civilization. Paul's influence is second only to Jesus in shaping how we think today in the Western world. And Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. He is honest. Peter, we know the story. Peter hears Jesus preaching, and then Jesus turns to him and says, I want you to get into the boat, and I want you to launch out of the deep, and I want you to cast the nets, and uh, you're going to catch a big, whatever, grouping of fish. I don't even know that's how you say it, right? I'm a nice sailor. I don't even know. Or a fisherman. And so he does it. He says, I don't know, Jesus. You're a rabbi. You're a carpenter. But I'll just, nevertheless, I'll do it according to your word. So he goes out and he catches all this fish. He comes back. And the very first thing that Peter says is, depart from me, for I am a sinner. Jesus just pats him on the back because Jesus meets 
Peter's confession with mercy. I love that. Not with judgment, but with mercy and grace. Peter says, ah, I just, I can't, you can't be around me, God. You don't even know who I am. You just, you're so qualitatively different than me. And Jesus said, don't even worry because I'm going to train you and I'm going to teach you how to become fishers of men. The point is, is that Peter, who had a lot of failures, who made a lot of bad decisions, made a lot of mistakes, is great and exemplary for us because he was honest. How do we deal with our sin? We take responsibility for it by being honest. Interesting study, a neural study that was conducted on non-religious and religious people uh, on, on how we evaluate and make judgments about ourselves and other people and how it affects the brain. The conclusion, and it's, it's a big study and I can't get into all the details of it. One researcher, said, one researcher said this, prayer, meditation, and confession actually have the power to rewire the brain in a way that can make us less self-referential and more aware of how God sees us. So what do we do in this season of Advent? How do we get on the inside of righteousness, peace, and joy? How does that become me, right? How do I live that out? How do I experience that? We have to start by acknowledging the darkness in our own heart, by taking responsibility for our sin. But we don't just stay there. Being honest is not enough. We must and this is where I'm going to close. We must be honest before Jesus because Jesus is the only one who can rescue you from your pain, the woundedness, the trauma, the sin, the sin patterns, the depression, the anxiety, all the things that we all, all of us, myself included, carry around in our bodies. Jesus is the answer. That is not a cliche. Isaiah 40, if you, Pastor Ken wanted us to read Isaiah 40 this last week. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah describes the ontological status of Yahweh in staggering ways. Basically, Yahweh is the one who fires the universe. He talks about his power and his strength that Yahweh basically has already weighed Jupiter. He, he, he understands quantum physics in a way and equations that we will never understand. Yahweh, his power, his strength, his wisdom, his goodness is absolutely incomparable, right? And then he goes on, he says, God is not limited te um, temporally or spatially by circumstances. This is the God that we serve. And this is why Paul in the book of Romans, which is kind of the beginning of the New Testament, says where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. You can be honest with yourself, but you need someone that's bigger than your sin. You need someone that's bigger than your pain. You need someone bigger than your stuff. You need someone bigger than your crap. Can I get an amen to this? You need someone bigger than all the things that deform your heart and your mind and keep you away from the promises of God. Those things that create dysfunction in your marriage, in your family, in your own life. We need someone 
ontologically bigger than ourselves. You see, the world's problem is that they think psychology can solve the problem. And I believe in psychology. And we have wonderful counselors in this church. But I think every psychologist would agree with me that they're not the answer to your problem. Even though psychology is great, but psychology cannot rescue you. And the world thinks if we could throw more money at the problem, if we could throw uh, more power at the problem, if we could arrange politics a little bit different, if we could just take down the bourgeois class and redistribute wealth or whatever, the problem with all of that is that as humans, we are finite and limited by space and time. We do not have the capacity to change what is going on because the deeper reality that is shaping the cosmos is that darkness has overtaken the human story and it is only God incarnated and his name is Jesus who can rescue us from the sin and from the pain and from the divided life and the disordered desires that keep us from truly becoming Advent people. He is incomparable in his goodness. Exodus 34 makes it very clear as I close that God is a God of grace and compassion. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and tender mercies. So when we come to a place of prayer, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, God does not need you to be good. Please hear me. The problem is that many of us think that, okay, I got to get my life, I got to put it all together, get all the pieces together, I got to figure me out and then go to God and maybe God will accept me. I mean, it's just woven in the fabric of our psychology. It's weird, right? The problem is that's not what God expects from us. God knows we're made of dust. God knows your sin. God knows your issues. God knows your 99 problems. But guess what? He always meets it with love and mercy. He comes to you with grace today. So God's expectation is not that you have to be good in a place of prayer. You just have to be honest before him. Whatever you do, be honest, give full vent to God. Don't blankety blank God. Can I get an amen? amen. Don't, don't be irreverent, but just give full vent to your emotions. Process your emotions before God. Come before him and say, God, this sucks. Or I can't make sense of this. I'm frustrated. Psalms, this is why I love Psalms, because Psalms gives us a pattern for prayer wherein we can come with all of our crazy, frustrating, stinking emotions and feels and direct them to God. God then transforms them. It is absolutely amazing. And then he, what does he do? He begins to work in our lives. He brings healing. He brings grace. He brings salvation. He rescues us. He takes us out of the miry pit. Come on, somebody. He lifts us up. He transforms our life so that we can become people wherein God works through us, bringing his glory, his wisdom, his power, his grace, his healing back into the world. So I want to close with Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is our foundational text here today. For us, to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, verse 7, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love this. This whole passage says God is passionate about putting you back together. Who is this God? Wonderful counselor. Pretty powerful. I don't know why I'm making faces at you. Come on, are you with me? Mighty God, wonderful counsel. The government is on his shoulders. He's the one in charge of the universe. Not the Republicans, not the Libertarians, not the Democrats, right? Whatever, not the Libs, not the Neocons, not laissez-faire economics. God is in charge of it all. Man, and when you really, when, when you really sink into this, this is when you can become honest in a place of prayer. God, I have all my problems, and here they are. And here's all my sin. Here's all my stuff that I know is just in opposition to your will. But I know that you are a good God. And I know that you are bigger than my sin. I know that you're bigger than that thing that happened to me when I was eight years old. I know that you're bigger than that sin pattern that I cannot get myself out of. And as you just share in a place of honesty with the one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, there is a dynamic that takes place in your life. It's a dynamic of healing and change and hope and joy. You start to become less self, self-referential. You start to lose a sense of yourself. You, you start loving your, your, your spouse and your family and your coworker and that Philadelphia Eagle fan like you never thought possible. You, you, you start to carry the presence and the grace of God as this reality begins to sink into your life that he is ontologically on a completely different level, guys. And guess what? He loves you with an everlasting love. So what do we do? This is where we close. This week, we'll take a week during Advent, and I want us to take 15 minutes minutes in the morning or maybe 15 minutes at night. You can do it longer. This is the baseline. And I just want you to go to God and be honest with him. I feel this really strongly right now. There are some of you, you, there are emotions that you have put on the shelf you have not dealt with for a long, long time. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, today is the day that if you open up your, even some of the deepest things in your heart and bring them to me, he's gonna bring healing in your heart. Now, yeah, 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 it might, might be painful. Let's be honest, right? Might hurt some of this stuff. But this is the beginning of becoming a spiritually mature, emotionally mature follower of Jesus wherein you get on the inside of righteousness, peace, and joy. So let's do that this week. Let's take 15 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe for some of you 30 minutes for seven days. Let's just practice this. Let's become Advent people. Let's be honest before God. And this is what you're going to find out as you're honest with God, as you process your life and your feelings, your story, your history, all that stuff before him, you're going to find a God of mercy and love and grace, and kindness, and goodness. You're not going to have that sense of fear, that fear that God's going to do something. It's going it's to go. It's going to be extinguished. 
you're going to experience life and life more abundantly. This is the season of Advent where Jesus comes, shines into the darkness of our life. And everyone said, if you believe that, amen. Go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, man, you are staggering. The one who fires the the universe into existence, the eternal son became flesh or literally tabernacled among us. A wonderful event of the incarnation of the eternal word who we call Jesus dwelt among us for us. We're so thankful. As we look back, we also look forward. We thank you that there will be a day when you will wipe away every tear and you will make all things new. There's going to be healing in our future, salvation, rescue. Father, I thank you that your word will always be the last word over our lives. And in this moment, next 30, 40 seconds, I thank you, Holy Spirit, you would go to work in us. Go to work, heal marriages, heal souls, heal those who have a divided life, heal wounds, forgive sins. Lord, as we open up our lives this week, and not just this week, but as we move into 2023, Lord, as we choose to be honest before God, as we process our life before him, Holy Spirit, I thank you, you've given us a promise that you will bring life to us. You will shine in the darkness of our lives, that you would do such a miraculous work in us, that people will marvel. So we say yes to you, Holy Spirit. We say yes to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Go ahead and take your hand if you want, put it on your heart. I wanna pray this one last prayer. Lord, our desire this Christmas and Advent season is to have soft hearts. As our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, I think some of you, and this is not a word of judgment, I think some of you here today have a very cynical heart. Maybe it's just because of circumstances, your past history, it's hard for you to trust. Not a word of judgment. All I'm saying, I think God's grace is coming to you today. God wants to come and bring healing to your heart because that cynicism has caused a hardness in your heart. You can't feel the presence of God. You can't, it's hard for you to process what's really happening in your own life and even with other people outside of you externally. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you would come today and you would, you would bring softness, you would bring tenderness to the hard-heartedness of anyone in this room by your grace and through your love. And I pray for all of us today as we learn to become Advent people, we wanna be people who are soft, honest, We don't want to lie to ourselves. Holy Spirit, say what you want to say and do what you want to do in us this Advent and Christmas season. In Jesus' name, we love you. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.